0: Gosh, good morning. Good morning, Colorado Springs. Um, So good to be here with you all on this important day on as President Tiefenthaler called it. You know, she's not here, but I just want to acknowledge what a tremendous loss it is to the college to have her leave, but what an awesome opportunity she has to lead National Geographic, right? So let's clap it up for the president of this mighty college i also want to acknowledge that we have colorado springs mayor here with us mayor john southers Uh, my dear friends henry allen who now leads dr king's organization sclc rosemary harris lytle who leads colorado naacp she was someone who worked with me closely when i was here of course, Rochelle Mason and Dr. Buckley for that beautiful introduction, and Claire Garcia, who taught me as an 18-year-old student uh, in one of the hardest classes I ever had, it was here it was here that Claire Garcia Professor Garcia, at that time gave us a book to read every night, a proper book to read each night, expanding my concept of what was possible if you put your mind to it, and if you stretch it. I, at this college, was a kid who originally didn't go too hard in the paint academically, but by the end of her block, found myself closing out the library on a regular basis, and it was here that I began to see that I could actually be the person that I am today, and I want to talk more about that. Uh, It's really humbling to be here before you all 25 years ago, right? I guess I was a student here, Dean Edmonds. Um, Dean Edmonds was my um, mentor at that time, my counselor. I'll talk more about him as well. And it's an honor to come back. I want to lift up, it's important to lift up what we heard from the students led by Shane Brown just a minute ago. That's what this college is about. This college is about equipping students with the ability to think critically and analytically and push back against systems of oppression that they find both here on the campus and the broader Colorado Springs community and across the country. So that that protest is happening means this college is doing the job of empowering students to push back and to find their voices. That is what this day is about. You all know that the theme of today's uh, conversation comes from the last book that Dr. King wrote, the year before he was assassinated. He wrote this book at a really important time in history. It was after some really watershed moments in American history and he asked in this book, where do we go from here? In light of the challenges that we now face, even after these watershed moments, where do we go from here? And I brought for you all some posters to take with you, which frame this question. Where do we go from here, chaos or community? And the top of the poster says, to answer that question, that we choose community over chaos. And the way that we do it is we say, we're not waiting for democracy to come to us from Washington, DC down. Folks who know history know it's never come that way. Democracy has always, always, always come from the ground up in our communities, and so we choose community over chaos. Dr. King said this at the end of that book, which you should all read. If you haven't, if you've read it, I urge you to read it again that we're now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We're confronted with the fierce urgency of now. This, he said, may well be our last chance to choose between chaos and community. It was more than 50 years that he wrote that book. And it's fascinating now to see that more than 50 years later, we're confronting the very question he asked us to grapple with then chaos or community. In the book, he said this. When the Constitution was written, it declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Today, another curious formula has emerged which declares that the Negro is 50% of a person. Of the good things in life, he has approximately one half of those of whites. Of the bad things, he has twice of those of whites thus half of all Negroes in this country live in substandard housing and they have half the income of whites there are twice as many black folks unemployed the rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites it is sobering for me to acknowledge it as we honor his 91st birthday and his legacy today we find ourselves facing that same stark choice chaos or community, and because this is one of the first holidays of the new year, I think it gives us a chance to ask ourselves this important question, and that is, how are we doing on social justice issues? How are we doing on racial justice issues? At the top of 2020, one of the most consequential years, one of the most consequential election years in a generation, how are we? doing on social and racial justice issues as was mentioned i lead the new jersey institute for social justice we're a group of legal advocates lawyers community organizers communications experts and we spend a lot of time thinking about the numbers so i'm 45 one of my favorite rappers is most deaf he talks a lot about today's mathematics right i see folks some of y'all are done because you know others don't know you should pretend like you know most deaf is by far one of the best rappers of all time, and he talks a lot about today's mathematics, the, the numbers, what the numbers tell us. Dr. King talked about them. We spend a lot of time thinking about the numbers, racial disparities, what they tell us, what they what they don't tell us. And it's fascinating that more than 50 years after Dr. King urged us to choose community over chaos, the numbers, to most this point, today's mathematics, have actually worsened, right? Have they actually worsened? so that 50 years after he urged us to choose community over chaos, the racial wealth gap has tripled. It would take a black family today, today's mathematics, it would take a black family today 228 years and a Latino family 84 years to achieve the wealth that the average white family has right now, did you catch that? 228 years for a black family to achieve the average net wealth that white families have right now. And to make matters worse, today's mathematics show us that the median net worth is projected for black families to reach zero by 2050 if current trends continue. In New Jersey where I live, where our organization is based, We spend a lot of time looking at racial disparities, the numbers, today's mathematics. New Jersey is one of the wealthiest states in the country. It's in that state that the median net worth for white families is $309,000. This is the highest net wealth of anyone in the country, $309,000. But the median net wealth for New Jersey's Latino families is just $7,200. And for New Jersey's black families, the median net wealth is $5,900. You follow me? $309,000 for white families, the highest net wealth in America. 7,200 for Latino families, $5,900 for black families. Last year we celebrated the 400 year anniversary of black folks arrival in Jamestown, Virginia. 401 years after black folks came to Jamestown, Virginia, the median net wealth for black families in New Jersey is $5,900. Nationally projected to go to zero by 2050. Those are today's mathematics. But we also spend a lot of time recognizing that what the racial disparities tell us is that these numbers don't reflect individual failures. They reflect systemic challenges that produce systemic racism that produce racial disparities. It's easy to look at those numbers and suggest there's something wrong with the people on the other side. of them. in fact, what they reflect are policy decisions driven by systemic racism that create them. So more than 50 years after Dr. King urged us to choose community over chaos, as Dr. Uche Blackstock recently wrote, black Americans continue to experience some of the worst racial outcomes, sorry, some of the worst health outcomes of any racial group. Black men have the shortest life expectancies. Black women have the highest maternal mortality rates. Black babies have the highest infant mortality rates and though these numbers grieve us, they're staggering, they're shameful, it's against these numbers, against the backdrop of our chaotic national landscape that it's easy to conclude that the arc of the moral universe is not in fact bending toward justice. That racial justice is sort of an empty slogan, and that the idea of freedom and liberation are elusive and beyond our grasp. But as Dr. King well knows, as his life evidences for us, the reason that we have packed this gym today to recognize that legacy is that what he taught us, if anything, is that on the other side of chaos, on the other side of today's mathematics, on the other side of systemic racism and oppression, there is another story to tell. That the solutions to these and other challenges we face right now are found from the ground up in our communities. They're not coming to us from Washington DC down. They never have and they never will. It always begins with a fight in local communities in gyms like these on college campuses like these. Because while Dr. King's impact was world changing, his work, his focus was intensely local. He knew that community would overcome chaos when people organize themselves around critical issues, when they were inspired by a vision that could see beyond which the naked eye could see, when they were fearless truth-tellers who were willing to lead and follow courageously, and when they were willing to bend their neighborhoods toward community. His work in Selma, Alabama provides, I think, a powerful example of this reality. It was shortly after President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that Dr. King went to him. And the story goes, as John Lewis tells it in his Walking with the Wind classic book, President Johnson was kind of feeling himself because he had just signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was a big deal. And here Dr. King comes to visit and say, hey, appreciate that you did that. But what we now need is a federal voting rights bill. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a good look, President Johnson, but Dr. King said, we need a federal voting rights bill. President Johnson, again, was feeling himself having just signed another big bill, and he said, you know, that may come, but it's not gonna happen in 1964. The country, he said, is suffering from, quote, civil rights fatigue, 1964. President Johnson tells Dr. King, the country is suffering from civil rights fatigue. You know what that means. They're tired of talking about these issues. They named it, we passed the bill. What's wrong? What's left? You got a civil rights act. Dr. King said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on a city called Selma, Alabama. And we're going to make you sign a federal voting rights bill. President Johnson said, go ahead, make me do it. Dr. King said, bet, right? (laughs) And what's fascinating for you all who know this piece of history, it wasn't like they chose an easy place. Alabama was a state that had perfected black voter suppression. Alabama had a constitution that required that if you wanted to register to vote, you had to cite from the brain whole pieces of the Constitution. There was another infamous test that required that if you wanted to register to vote, you had to guess how many bars there were in a bubble of soap. Real. Even the most learned, a, a, a Dean Edmonds with a PhD or a with, they couldn't they couldn't figure that one out. This was Alabama. Alabama was a place where in the county that holds Selma, there were 15,000 black voting aged people who could register to vote. There were fewer than 300 black folks registered. In the neighboring county that was 80% black, there were zero black folks who were registered to vote. This was Alabama, they chose Selma, Alabama. And you know the story, there was a movie, a fantastic movie uh, made, Ava DuVernay, that popularized our understanding of Selma. This was the place that on what became known as Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, 600 or so protesters peacefully endeavored to walk over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Edmund Pettus was a grand wizard of the KKK. That's still the name of the bridge today. Edmund Pettus Bridge connects Selma and Montgomery. And the plan was led by John Lewis, now a congressman, Amelia Boynton and 600 others, to dramatize the nation their desire to be treated like full-class citizens and finally have access to the right to vote. And so on the Sunday, they gathered, they organized in a peaceful demonstration. As they rounded the top of the bridge, they there began to see Alabama state troopers who weren't playing games. They were armed with clubs, and as they came on the other side of the bridge, it was there the Alabama state troopers brutalized them. They beat them with billy clubs. They stomped them with their horses. They spit on them. They cracked John Lewis's skull. And they knocked Amelia Boynton unconscious. Those are literally blows taken for democracy. And the goal was to finally make America live up to its high ideals and away from its low practices. The goal was to make President Johnson do it. It was to take him up on his bet to do it. And it worked. That night, black and white images and regular TV was interrupted by these images of Alabama state troopers brutalizing nonviolent, peaceful protesters of all colors who wanted to finally dramatize to the nation why voting was essential. It had been given by the 15th Amendment 100 years earlier, but it was a dead letter for more than a century until Bloody Sunday. And in a fascinating way, nine months later, President Johnson signs a federal voting rights bill that he said would have been impossible to sign nine months earlier. They made him do it. The Voting Rights Act is passed in 1965. Within just one generation, one generation, this country elects more than 10,000 black elected officials across the country and elects the first black president to the highest office in the land. And for many of you, I can see you, you remember, for those who are a little older, that if someone asked you in your lifetime, will this country elect a black president, you would have said it'd be impossible. There are students at Colorado College who grew up today only knowing that we had a black president twice. They came of age in the era of Barack Obama, but for many of us in the room, if we had been asked before there was a President Obama, Would we elect a black president in our lifetime, we would have said it's not possible. This country is far too racist to the core. It's not going to happen. Maybe in our kids' lifetime, but certainly not in ours. But it happened because they made him do it. They made him sign a bill that paved the way for this country to elect its first black president. Interestingly, in Alabama, white voters, only 10% of white voters voted for President Obama in his first term. 11% in the second term, the lowest in the country. But people of color, young voters, women, turned out in massive numbers and in Alabama, across the country, to make that, that possible. But as Dr. King would tell you, democracy in this country has always been a contested exercise. Where there's been expansion of the electorate, there's always been a swift effort on the part of states to scale it back. That is the reality of democracy in America. And so he would say, you cannot have a Barack Obama followed by the first black attorney general then the first black female attorney general without then having an effort to scale all of that back. You can't have 2008 and 2012 without then having, what? 2016 and 2020. You cannot have, as history goes, a Barack Obama without then having a Donald Trump and here's how you would get there shortly after President Obama wins through the passage of the Voting Rights Act a generation earlier states begin to challenge the constitutionality of the heart of the Voting Rights Act this very piece of legislation that made it possible for him to become the president first comes one from Texas I and my colleagues at LDF beat back that challenge another challenge came from Shelby County Alabama And it was a direct assault on the heart of the Voting Rights Act, the thing that made it possible to elect a black president. And something happens. A devastating decision from the Supreme Court, we lose. The Supreme Court in a case called Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder strikes down the heart of the Voting Rights Act, the thing that made it possible to elect a black president twice. And then there was across the country this, kind of like now, not in this room, because you all are super woke, but outside this room, there was this deafening silence in response. The Supreme Court strikes the heart of the Voting Rights Act, the thing that made it possible to elect a black president twice. In the country, there's largely silence, but then states begin to mount an assault on voting that is historic in its intensity and in its scope, and the heart of it becomes photo ID measures so that more than 30 states across the country elect photo ID measures, making it harder to vote. And then something happens. On the other side of a period of democratic expansion, contraction happens, making it harder for people to exercise the right to vote. And then November 8, 2016. And then the election of a president who restores white supremacy to the White House and then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and then Justice Neil Gorsuch, and then what you see in everyday news clippings. But Dr. King would tell us today and all days that this particular moment here is certainly no different, dif- more difficult than when he and so many others set their sights on Selma and built a movement from the ground up that would make a reluctant President Johnson sign the Voting Rights Act. And so I think that this then is our moment to choose community over chaos. Because it's up to us to ensure that we swing the pendulum back toward community by first registering and voting as if our lives and rights depend on it, because they do. And this is the year that the 2020 census will be taken. So we've got to ensure that everyone is counted in the census to ensure that proper representation and resources come to our community. Because in this difficult national moment, as always, change will occur, as it did in Selma, from the ground up in our communities, despite the racist, xenophobic, and dangerous policies being promoted by state and national leaders, including the president of this country. I think if there's a lesson to learn from the last 50-plus years, it is that people who care about social and racial justice can't afford to be shook. We can't afford to be timid. We can't afford to be afraid because there would be no Voting Rights Act without the sustained generations long on the ground organizing advocacy, resistance, meetings, and hush harbors places of worships, and high school classes, in rooms on college campuses, in gymnasiums, the risk to body, comfort, and spirit, even sacrificing life, and the bloody Sunday that preceded it. As I think about our collective responsibility to choose community over chaos, there are just three things I wanna lift up that I think we have to do, and first, Comes to us directly from what Dr. King taught us in Selma. It's also something that Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative, a dear friend of mine, talks a lot about. And that is that we have to be close to those things we're passionate about changing. That this proximity allows us to see, this closeness allows us to see, hear, and understand things that cannot be seen, heard, or understood from, from a distance. You know, I, for example, didn't grow up knowing any lawyers. My mom, who's watching us, uh, raised me by herself in Denver, Colorado, and I went to a high school there called Manuel High School, it's in the heart of what was then uh, Denver's historically black neighborhood. Uh, the Five Points, uh, it was then Rosemary Harris Lido's then uh, Denver's historically black neighborhood. My mom raised me there and I came to this college and I had an advisor, Dean Edmonds, especially hard on me as he was close to me. And he encouraged me to consider life as as a lawyer. I had a class he taught. I'll talk more about that, the 11-15 conversation. Uh, But it was an acting class. It was really more of a critical reasoning and critical writing class. And he told me that I could be be a lawyer. I could channel some of my uh, arguments, some of my difficult uh, behaviors into arguments. I could discipline my mind through the readings that uh, Professor Garcia gave to become an attorney. And this for me was revelation knowledge because I didn't know any lawyers. I did not have a vision for for what a lawyer could be, how that could happen, what I could do with it, with with my voice, with my mind. But for his decision to be close to me, to be proximate to me intentionally, I promise you I wouldn't be talking to you as a lawyer today because that's what proximity does. You cannot change things that you're not close to, right? Right? In addition to being proximate, I think we have to be fearless truth-tellers. We have to be willing to tell the truth fearlessly, and we have to be willing to lead and to follow courageously. One of the most striking things about Dr. King was that he came into uh, fame, recognition, at the age of 26. He was 26 when he became a household name. In 1963, when he was just 33, he predicted with prophetic precision, that America would elect a black president. He knew that at 33. And then at 34, he gave perhaps one of the most important speeches ever. If he had lived right now today, he would have been a millennial in this time. Think about that. And he died before he was 40. And I think there's a lesson in leadership here. And that is that Dr. King's elders poured into him in such a way that he was ready to lead at 26. And perhaps as importantly, if not more importantly, that his elders were willing to follow him at 26. And the question for those of us of a certain age is, what 26-year-olds are we nurturing? Because very often, if we get honest, those of us in positions of leadership, we like it. And we rock it till the wheels fall all the way off, right? (laughs) I mean, all the way off. And there is no succession plan. We don't often think about our leadership beyond our ability to lead the thing we're leading. So that question, it should be a challenge for us of a certain age. What 26-year-olds are we nurturing for leadership? Because if we waited for Dr. King to turn 40 when he came into leadership, we wouldn't be having this conversation today right in addition to leading and following courageously we've also got to be fearless truth tellers and this is really hard to do because this requires us to do things that will make us very uncomfortable we're uncomfortable We're making people uncomfortable the truth makes folks uncomfortable and my pastor recently shared with me a powerful story about the role of truth tellers in society he explained that truth tellers use their voices to make sure that people in positions of power are held accountable to the people. That truth-tellers stand with people in positions of power when they do right by the people. And this, of course, people in positions of power, they love, they love this. But because truth-tellers will also hold people in positions of power accountable, truth-tellers will be disliked by those in positions of power. Bernice King recently said this about her father. Dr. King, she said, at the time that my dad was killed, a poll reflected that he was the most hated man in America. The most hated. Many who quote him now and use him to deter justice would hate him too, if they really, truly studied my father. When you think about Dr. King, you don't think about him as the most hated man in America. Why was he the most hated man? We, on this poster, it says Community Over Chaos, at the bottom, There's someone holding up a picture of him that says, I have the same dream. But we got to be clear about what Dr. King's dream was because that dream that he was championing at the end of his life, the Poor People's Campaign was the dream that got him killed. Do we have dreams that make people uncomfortable? Do we have dreams that will get us killed? That was his standard, right? This is not the... Coke Pepsi commercial, Dr. King, that was running on commercials today. No, this is a Dr. King that dreamt in a way that shook the core of America in a way that got him killed before he turned 40 years old. That was the dream. Dr. King, the person we celebrate today, was constantly under threat of imminent death, subjected to relentless FBI wiretapping and ruthless harassment. And his example teaches us that whether we are disliked or beloved, truth-tellers are by their very nature required to tell the truth because we are accountable to the people too. And that's who we are in this space, truth-tellers. As such, I think it's appropriate to be committed then to this truth, that because the system is going to be the system, the truth-tellers have to be the voice for the people. That no matter how uncomfortable it makes some people in positions of power, the people must remain committed to building systems that make the promises of democracy real for those too long denied access to them. And the final thing I lift up here is that we've gotta stay hopeful. And uh, Dean Mason mentioned my wife, Charity, I, talk, I tell the story as often as I can. Um, I met Charity in high school. Um, she was my algebra teacher at that time. Sorry, algebra tutor. She acted like a teacher. Apolo- yeah, sorry, sorry about that. I apologize, I misspoke. Mean, I misspoke, miss yeah, let me walk that back. She was my algebra tutor. She was one grade ahead of me, all right? I had a teacher, right? It was the teacher who gave me charity as a tutor. Let me just apologize. That's an important distinction. I got to get that right. I was failing algebra, failing. And you cannot play sports if you're failing, right? And I wanted to play. So my algebra teacher assigned Charity to be my algebra tutor. And she was very good in math. She was a very good student. She was superior then and now in all respects to me, certainly academically then and now. And so I had to give up my lunch hours to be tutored by her. She was tyrannical in her approach. She was a kind of tutor. You know, there's a couple different ways to do it. Oftentimes the way I think of it is you want to encourage the struggling student, right? Not this one. Now, she was like a drill sergeant and she was a kind of tutor who would say like, I just, it blows my mind you can't grasp these simple concepts, (laughs) right? That's how she she came. Fortunately, through her tutoring, I managed to um, pass that class, right? And then Charity comes to Colorado College You know, I hadn't actually heard of Colorado College. I grew up, as I mentioned, in Denver. She hadn't heard of Colorado College either. She learned about the college because she used to babysit for a family that had older kids that came here. So when she came here, I was like, oh, let me take a look at that. I wasn't actually, to to Rochelle's point, I wasn't trying to pursue her, okay? She just, she came here, and then I said, oh, I should check it out. I came here, and I liked it. That's how I came. And she happened to be here. That's another important, clarified point, all right? So I got here and she was here. So oh, you here? How'd you get here? Oh, you go okay. She said, I was here first. All right, stop playing. <laughs> so after Colorado College, she applies uh, both for graduate school at Harvard, and she applies to a program called Teach for America. And she gets admitted to Harvard, but she also gets admitted to Teach for America. Teach for America is kind of like the Peace Corps for teachers, it's a two-year program. And the idea is they give you some intensive training over the summer and they put you in an urban or a rural setting. You can choose, those are your choices. They put you where they need you. So she chose urban and they put her in Newark, New Jersey. Right? So she graduates from here. She hops in a 1986 Chevy Celebrity, stick shift, five speed, and she drives it to New Jersey. And she will tell you she was actually driving that thing to get away from me. Is what she would tell you. I don't know if that's true. That's what she would say. And she begins to teach in Newark. It's funny because when she got there, I was like, I've never been to the Northeast. How, you know, how is Newark? Do they have black people there? Well, so she said, do they? Right? That's often a question we get in Colorado. Are there black people in Colorado? Yeah. They're right here in this gym. There's a couple of us. There's a couple. You know, pockets. You know, critical mass in the gym, right? And uh, she teaches for um, nine years in the classroom. And then she becomes a vice principal and does that for five years. For the last 10 years, she's been the principal of Avon Avenue School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. When she became the principal, it was the lowest performing school in New Jersey. And now it's in the middle of the pack in Newark. Incredible work that she and her team have done with students, parents, and the community. But in her role as a principal, she has, on many occasions, hired a staff. And so on this hopeful theme, on one occasion, she was gonna hire a gentleman whom she was very enthusiastic about. He was actually by trade a lawyer, and he wanted to make a career change to be more impactful, as he described it. And so she tells me the night before the interview, she's very excited about him. All he has to do, all he has to do is show up and do a halfway decent job, and she'll hire him. Very excited, interview the following day, halfway decent job, he's hired. Following day comes, Charity begins the interview with a very straightforward question. She says, quote, when you look at the community and the school around it, tell me, what do you see? Now, he's kind of like President Johnson was earlier with Dr. King, he's kind of feeling himself. He's like, this is the question? Oh, I got this. I was trained as a lawyer. I think it was a good school, Colorado College-type school. Yeah, so then he answers the question literally, right? question is, what do you see? When you look around the school and the community, he answers, got this. Well, he said, I see a dwindling student population, extreme poverty, decaying buildings, empty lots littered with garbage, police cars, and then he concludes, generally lots of despair. And there's a silence. My wife tells me that she's disappointed with this response and she answers him, by the way, one question went out right one question one answer has come back and here's her reply thanks Um, but you can't help us Now he's confused that's first of all it's cold-blooded he's confused like what happened and then she goes on to say it's important for you to understand as you apply for your next job now that's especially (laughs) cold-blooded right it's important for you to understand as you apply for your next job this critical truth and that is that the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees problems, limitations, despair, darkness, hopelessness, then that's all there's ever going to be. But what my kids need is a team of teachers who no matter what the conditions are able to see boundless possibility, opportunity, light, and hope. And I think what Charity was saying to this once promising applicant in this cold-blooded exchange is that what she needed was someone with the vision to see beyond that which the naked eye could see to build what could be indeed what must be. And that's what this moment, I think that's what this time requires of us. That we're advocates who are proximate to the cause, that we use our voices to be relentless truth-tellers and courageous leaders and followers, guided by substantive hope, and committed to bending our neighborhoods toward community. I close with this. In his mountaintop speech, the night before he was assassinated, Dr. King, he knew that his death was near though he longed for more time than he had on the earth. And he said, strangely enough, if I could, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you will allow me just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I would be happy. And I thought about that. What if Dr. King made it? What if God granted him this prayer? If he had lived a few years into the 20th, the second half of the 20th century, he would have seen at least part of the promise fulfilled of his march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And within just one generation after its passage, in 2008, as he predicted with prophetic precision that America would elect its first black president, he would have been 79 at that time. And he would have lived to see America's first black attorney general Something that would have been inconceivable in his mind if asked, I think. And then he would have seen America's first black woman attorney general. But if he had lived eight more years of 2016, when he would have been 87, he would have lived to see white supremacy return to the White House. And perhaps he would have reminded us that that is how the American story goes. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have progress without attempts to scale it back. That has always been the experience with democracy, a contested nature of democracy in this country, which is why he continued in that same speech. The world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble in the land, confusion is all around. But I know, he said, somehow, only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in the period of the 20th century in a way that when people in some strange way are responding, something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they're assembled, whether in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee, Colorado Springs, Colorado, the cry is always the same, that we want to be free. And so it is with us that the fight for freedom continues. Inspired by Dr. King's fight for it, yes, but for our responsibility to powerfully choose community to carry on that fight. however difficult the national moment is, Dr. King summons each of us to courageously choose community over chaos through our advocacy for solutions to some of the most challenging situations we face from the ground up right here in this gymnasium in Colorado Springs, Colorado more broadly. And that's what we are to do. Embrace the king vision of social justice. Be proximate, fearless truth-tellers. Courageous leaders and followers willing to do uncomfortable things. Inspired by the kind of charity hey good, substantive hope, and committed to bending our neighborhoods toward the beloved community. Thank you so much for your time happy (laughs) to be here.